One small difference between today and our previous recollections will be that uh, whereas previously we have done one, uh, we started with an instruction, which is more a, a doctrinal formation, and the two other talks have been to prepare uh, for uh, a meditation. Today will be a bit different. Father Christoph wanted to uh, present the example of the saints. The saints are not just intercessors for us, but examples. Okay, and so uh, all three talks will be more of the nature of an instruction rather than preparing uh, formally a meditation, although I hope that uh, all these talks will give you uh, matter for reflection. Our Lord says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. For he that shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself and cast away himself? Amen, amen, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat die, itself remaineth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world keepeth it unto life eternal. Those two passages are from Luke. Chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, and John chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. Those who have deformed Christianity into a religion of this world, into a religion of earthly blessings, delude themselves about the message and the mission of Jesus Christ. It is of course a message and a mission of life, but not a life of pleasure, of riches or of honour, but the superior life of grace and heavenly glory. The spirit of Jesus Christ that we must have in this world is the spirit of the cross. He entered this world yearning to offer his life in sacrifice upon the cross. And all the saints, in whatever place, in whatever period of history, have loved the cross and embraced it through penance and mortification. Are penance and mortification the same thing? Well, some authors use the two terms interchangeably because very often the acts of penance and the acts of mortification will appear very similar on the outside. And in fact, the same action can be accomplished with a number of complementary intentions. Now, we can do something for a number 
of different reasons, so long as they don't contradict each other. And is it the same as saying that a single action can be a way of exercising several <coughs> virtues? Or in the negative, several vices. So on the whole, when we're going to talk about penance, we are talking about doing something to expiate past sins. Now the sins that regrettably we have already committed. Whereas by mortification, we are going to be talking about preventing future sins. The sins which, alas, we are inclined to. Now when we talk about penance, we can be referring to three different realities. The virtue of penance, the sacrament of penance, or acts of penance. And even those acts of penance, we can distinguish and say, well, there are those which the priest gives us to do when we go to confession, and then there are all those other penances which may fall on us or which we may choose of our own free will. So today we're not going to talk really at all about the sacrament of penance, as important as that is. And let us just briefly say a word about the virtue of penance, because it is this virtue that moves us, inclines us to perform our acts of penance. So we can define the virtue of penance as a supernatural habit which is infused into the soul by God, whereby, and by this, by this virtue, man readily inclines, he easily inclines, both to sorrow for sins committed, inasmuch as they offend God, and not for some other reason, not just because it makes life difficult, inasmuch as they offend God, and to a firm purpose of amendment. Now this virtue of penance is absolutely necessary for our salvation and for two, from two points of view. Firstly, very simply, because God has commanded it. That's, that's the most simple reason. It's what we call a necessity of precept. Okay. Our Lord came preaching penance. I say to you, unless you do penance, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 5. And after him came his apostles. Acts 2:38. Peter said to them, do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So penance is... Uh, a divine command, and without it we cannot be saved. But, secondly, more profoundly perhaps, because God doesn't just command things arbitrarily, but always in conjunction with his wisdom, you can say that salvation without penance is like a contradiction in terms. It's simply unreal. And in that sense, it's what we call a necessity of means. It is a necessary means to take to achieve the end, the goal, which is our salvation.
we cannot reach salvation. And before that, in this world, we cannot reach justification, being placed in a state of grace. Without the virtue of penance, for how can we enter heaven, which is the kingdom of the love of God, except that we hate everything that is opposed to God? And that is sin and the effects of sin. So if we truly hate sin, if we truly detest sin, then we will have, we will seek with regards to the past to make reparation by acts of penance. And for the future, we will have a firm purpose of amendment. So our first main point is that we do penance. Why do we do penance? We do penance to expiate past sins. And we can say that this is something which is owed in justice. It is a matter of justice. Let's try to understand the place of penance in the overall architecture of the virtues. You know that a man's will and therefore man himself is perfected by the virtues. The will is good if it is moulded by firm dispositions or habits to choose always the good under its different aspects. And this is virtue. So we have the theological virtues. I'm reminding you of what you certainly know already. We have the theological virtues, charity, which is the most important, hope and faith, which is fundamental, because without it, the other two cannot exist. And then we have the moral virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, that we call as well the cardinal virtues, because all the other virtues, patience, chastity, so forth, they hang from these four moral virtues. If you you like, you can think about them as being subdivided into all the other virtues that you can think of. So where does penance come in all this? In this great architecture of virtue? Well, during Lent, when we think penance, we often think, ah, fasting. And so we might assume that penance is part of the virtue of temperance, temperance which inclines us to regulate all the pleasures of the body according to the dictates of right reason. But in fact, that would be wrong. Now, of course, it's true that fasting in itself is an act of temperance, yes. But when we fast from a motive of penance, then it takes on another and superior character. Our aim, when we do it from penance, our aim is not merely to eat in the manner of a reasonable, well-balanced person, like in order to to stay healthy, for example, or so that our intelligence will not be impeded in the contemplation of higher things. That would be temperance. Those are reasons for which even an atheist might fast. But penance is in fact a part of not of temperance, but of justice. The great virtue of justice. The virtue which inclines us 
to render to each one his due, to render him his right. In particular, it is a part of the virtue of religion, which is the virtue of rendering what is due to God. Now, when we offend God, we owe him something in return. We contract a debt towards him. If you read the Gospel of St. Luke in particular, St. Luke often refers to sin as a debt. And the paying of this debt is described in different different terms. You may have heard reparation, expiation, propitiation, satisfaction, and so forth. I'm not going to explore all the distinctions between these terms, but uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, which, which we recommend to you all, opts mainly for this term of satisfaction. I'll explain briefly what that is. A penance has to have something, has to have a, a penal aspect. Right? It has to cost us, it has to deprive us of something. Huh? Why? Well, because uh, when, when justice uh, between men tries to repair something, it consists in depriving the one who has too much and giving to the one from whom something has been taken. So in penance we find the same thing. Something has to be taken away from the sinner. Now, to explain a bit more this idea of satisfaction, satisfaction is more than just a punishment. It includes the demands of justice, but it also surpasses them. It is a reparation, but, here's the difference, it is one which is offered voluntarily by the offender himself, whereas punishment can be something imposed uh, from the outside without any change of heart. So it's offered voluntarily by the offender. And what is offered is something that the offended party loves, something that they love more than they detest the offence. Because the aim of satisfaction is not only to restore the offended party in his rights, but to restore the friendship of the two parties. Now let's think about the relationship then between penance and sin. Sin carries in its train three evil effects. Firstly, the guilt or the stain of sin. Secondly, the punishment And thirdly, uh, the the, the evil habit which is formed. Now, in our Christian life, the stain is taken away, first of all, by the sacrament of baptism. And subsequently, by the sacrament of confession. Or, uh, sometimes, when a person is in the impossibility of getting to the sacraments by an act of perfect contrition. So when that guilt or stain is taken away, in common language, we we would say that we are forgiven. We are forgiven our sin. But the habit that sin forms, or the vice, 
is taken away neither by baptism nor by confession. It stays there. We have to fight against it. And that is the work of mortification, which we'll be seeing later on. And so this leaves us with the third effect of sin, which is the punishment, which is due to sin. Now you may remember from the doctrines of, of hell and purgatory that we considered back in November, that the punishment due to sin is of two kinds. There is an eternal punishment, a punishment without end, and there is a temporal punishment, a punishment that is for a time only, that is limited in some way. We can think about how Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, well, God forgave them. They did not end up going to hell. They remained in the limbo of the fathers until our Lord descended to visit them, to open heaven, and all the souls of the just who had lived before him rose to heaven. Okay, so they did not, they were forgiven. But they still had to pay a temporal punishment. If you open third chapter of Genesis, you'll see God condemning him to uh, the death of the body, the toil of work, childbearing, and so forth. These are temporal punishments. So these two punishments, the eternal and the temporal, they correspond to two aspects of every mortal sin. In a mortal sin, there is a turning away from God, the sovereign good, and there is a turning towards some created good that we choose in preference to God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have done two evils. They have have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug to themselves systems, broken systems that can hold no water. So you see the two elements of a mortal sin. They have forsaken me, turning away from the sovereign good, and they have dug to themselves systems, broken systems that hold no water, turning towards creatures in a disordered way, creatures which cannot satisfy us. Turning away from God, who is infinitely good, is in a way an offence of infinite gravity, and it merits for us a punishment without end. Turning towards a created good in a disordered way, obviously we can turn towards created goods in an ordered way, We have to go on eating in order to survive. That's in the the natural order of things. But turning towards them in a disordered way merits for us some kind of limited punishment. Now, it is because of the impossibility for man of making up for the offence against the infinitely good God that God the Son took flesh and died for us. To save us from eternal damnation, Jesus Christ has made 
satisfaction for us. And that is, as we said, he has offered to God the Father something that is more pleasing to him than sin is displeasing. Now, of course, God, who is absolutely free, huh, who uh, in, in a strict sense does not owe anything to anyone, he was free also to forgive man without receiving anything, without receiving any satisfaction. Okay. He would not have been going against some higher authority if he did that, because there is no higher authority. Okay. But St. Thomas... St. Thomas Aquinas points out that although this would have been merciful, it would have been merciful simply to say, okay, I cancel everything, it's fine. It was much more merciful and therefore more fitting for God to give man a way of satisfying for his sins. And this is in fact what happens. Principally in the person of Christ himself. The God-man. In Jesus Christ, man is, in a way, satisfying for sins. And secondly, in those who are made the members of Jesus Christ in the church. So first of all, in the person of Christ himself. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a superabundant satisfaction for sin because of the dignity of his person, which is divine, his divine person. So that gives a dignity also to his a dignity and a value, infinite value to his actions. Because of the dignity of the life that he laid down. And also because of the exceeding charity with which he suffered. And finally because of the greatness of his sufferings in soul and body. So Christ has made a superabundant satisfaction for sin. It is enough, it is more than enough to make up for all the sins of all men throughout the whole history of the world. Christ and Christ alone has made this full and superabundant satisfaction for sins. And whenever our sins are forgiven... by baptism, by confession, so forth. Whenever our sins are forgiven, the eternal punishment that we merit is taken away by virtue of our being made one with Christ and therefore sharing in the merits and satisfaction of his passion. See, it's not so much that he stands in our place uh, and is punished in our place, it is that we share with him the value, uh, the merits and the satisfaction of his passion and death. And in fact, all the actions of his life. Baptism, as we said, takes away the whole punishment due for sin, both eternal and temporal. But as for those sins that are forgiven in confession, the eternal punishment, yes, is taken away, but there remains the temporal Punishment And this punishment must be expiated, must be satisfied, either actively in this life by penance or passively in purgatory. As St. Paul writes, Colossians 1.24, 
I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up those things that are wanting, that are missing, that are lacking, in the sufferings of Christ, in my flesh, for his body, which is the church. I fill up those things that are wanting in the sufferings of Christ. What does this mean? We've just said that that the satisfaction of Christ is full and superabundant. Well, what is wanting, what is lacking, is our own participation in that. So first of all, God in his great mercy has made satisfaction for sin possible in the person of Christ. And secondly, in the members of Christ, they also make satisfaction. Our satisfaction, the the satisfaction which we make to God, is subordinate to Christ. Without him it would be impossible. Outside of him it is impossible. He has merited for us the possibility of satisfying in Him by our good works that proceed from grace and charity. The Council of Trent, session 14, chapter 9, says, So great is the liberality of the divine munificence that we are able, through Jesus Christ, to make satisfaction to God the Father. So we can make satisfaction to God, but even that capacity is itself a mercy of God. So we've seen that the uh, the idea of penance is part of justice, something which is owed, something which must be rendered to God on account of our past sins. But we've seen already that with this notion of satisfaction, which goes a bit beyond the simple idea of reparation or punishment, there's also the idea of charity. Satisfaction is offered in charity and has value because of charity. And so we can also think that our penances are not only offered in justice, but they are offered in charity, okay? in the church, in the mystical body of Christ. We can also offer satisfaction for others. said so that satisfaction was offered voluntarily by the offender. Obviously, Christ has not offended God. But he offers satisfaction for us. And we can offer satisfaction for others because of the fact that spiritually, morally, we are one. We are one single mystical body of Christ. And this is particularly appropriate, of course, for priests. We'll be seeing later on the example of the Curie of Ars, but also for for religious and for all generous souls. Penance can be an act of charity offered for others. So now our second main point, we're going to consider the works of penance. More briefly, I said that uh, the works of penance, the works of mortification, the acts, resemble each other strongly. Okay, so there's going to be a bit of overlap here. What I say for one will count for the other as well. So the Council of Trent, taking up again that quotation from earlier and continuing, 
Uh, Session 14, Chapter 9. Council Trent says this, So great is the liberality and the divine munificence that we are able, through Jesus Christ, to make satisfaction to God the Father. And now the council gives three ways. Not only by punishments voluntarily undertaken of ourselves for the punishment of sin, or by, number two, those imposed at the discretion of the priest according to the measure of our delinquency in the sacrament of confession, but also, which is a very great proof of love, says the council, by, number three, the temporal scourges inflicted by God and borne patiently by us. Okay, so the council is trying to give us a very broad idea of what our penance consists in, what our acts of penance, our works of penance, consist in. Okay, basing ourselves on, those, on that text, we can divide into, into four. Okay, first of all, okay, what is unavoidable, the crosses that providence sends us. The inescapable effects of illness or old age, uh, the intemperance of the weather and the climate, reversals of fortune that often happen in our lives, humiliations, failures, okay, all these things okay, which are inescapable, nevertheless, uh, we can offer them in a spirit of penance, and we should. And then closely linked to these okay, are the things which were not in the same way inescapable, but have become obligatory for us. Okay? And this means, obviously, the faithful accomplishment of our duties of state. First book of Kings, chapter 15, 22. Obedience is better than victims. So this means that we must accomplish as a priority what is obligatory before adding extra or supererogatory works. Although, of course, often the latter, now the things that we add on as extra, will help us to better accomplish the former, the things that we're obliged to do, because they train us in self-sacrifice. But all those things as well, all those things that we're obliged to do by uh, the duties of our state of life, all that as well can and should be offered in a spirit of penance. Remember I said the same act can be accomplished with a number of different intentions. So we can add the intention of penance. In third place, we have all those works which are specially recommended by Holy Scripture. Okay. In first place, fasting and almsgiving, okay, which we'll be considering uh, tomorrow. And then, finally, all those other voluntary works uh, that we add and which are in some way uh, repugnant to us. Okay. Either to our senses, to our body, uh, to our will, because it's done by obedience or whatever. Okay? Uh, 
And we'll give more details of those kinds of works when we turn to mortification. So we've been saying that penance is because of past sins. And now we're going to turn towards mortification, which is to do with the prevention of future sins. Okay? Doctors often say yeah, prevention is better than the cure. Okay? So prevention in our spiritual life means mortification. Okay? It's part of that firm purpose of amendment that we must have when we have when we go to con- when we go to confession. Okay? If we really want to to be bad, to avoid sins in the future, then we need to mortify ourselves, we need to purify ourselves. Our Lord says, John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he will take away, and every one that beareth fruit, he will purge it that it may bring forth more fruit. So this period of Lent in particular, but of course our whole Christian life, should be a continual growth. And to grow spiritually and to bear spiritual fruits, a purgation, a purification, is necessary. Part of this purification, God does himself. We call it a passive Purification, But part of it must come from ourselves. Because God will not save us without us. Part of it must come from ourselves, from our own initiative, actively, in accordance with what our Lord taught when he said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And this active purification and self-denial is the work of mortification. Okay? We can define Mortification as the destruction of sin and its consequences, the renouncement of things that are licit, that are allowed, that are permitted, but not useful for us, so that preoccupation with them may not absorb us to the detriment of divine union, to the detriment of union with God. So we're now going to look at the four great reasons for how to make mortification absolutely necessary. I mentioned some of these a few weeks ago in Kiseni. We're going to go into more depth now. First of all, mortification is necessary because of the results of original sin. Something we've talked about before. When God created Adam and Eve, he elevated their human nature by sanctifying grace, what we call original justice. And he embellished it, he embellished that nature by the four preternatural gifts. Immortality, impassibility, infused knowledge and integrity. And this last one, this gift of integrity, we're going to focus on that. It refers to the marvellous harmony that there was in man's whole being and in his soul. A harmony by which what what is lower in us was subject to what is higher in us. The body was perfectly subject to the soul. And in his soul... 
all Adam's passions and sensual emotions were subject to his reason. Now, so, for example, it was impossible for him to be angry or to be fearful unless it was a perfectly reasonable anger or fear. This is also why we say that the sin of Adam had to be, it was a sin of the spirit, pride. It couldn't be a sin of, of the body, a sin of the flesh, like gluttony, for example. Now, sometimes, because we talk about Adam and Eve eating the fruit, we think, ah, oh, okay, they were just, uh, they, 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 it was a sin of gluttony. Not at all, uh, because in them, all the desires of their bodies were in complete submission to their reason and will. Okay? And the gift of integrity. The sin of Adam deprived the human race of sanctifying grace and deprived it of the preternatural gifts and that is why we now, we will all taste death, we taste suffering, and our passions are no longer completely subject to our reason and will that are rebellious. Okay. We get angry very easily, and we lose our patience, and other things like that. Original sin has left our human nature profoundly wounded. That's not to say that our nature is not good. Our nature, our body, our soul, and all the powers of our body and soul. Okay. Our nature is good. It is the creation of a good and wise God. But it is wounded. Right? Mortification is not there for destroying what God has created, but for healing it. Okay? Father Christoph will talk to you more about, about that that difference and some of the uh, errors that there have been about that. So what are these wounds that we bear in our souls as a result of original sin? There are four and they correspond to the four faculties or powers of our soul. In our soul we have uh, two higher faculties, the, the intelligence and the will. Our will, although it's capable of good, of choosing the good, of wanting the good, nevertheless, yeah, it's capable of that, nevertheless, it bears the deep wound of malice, which is an inclination to evil, the source of self-love, egoism, pride, envy, avarice. Now, these things come easily to us. Our intellect, although it is capable of knowing truth, some truth. Nevertheless, it bears the wound of ignorance, source of imprudence and spiritual blindness. The, reason, the intellect and the will. And then our soul also has two lower faculties of, of appetite. That we call the, the concupiscible appetite, which is concerned with sensible goods, things which... Uh, Goods of the sense, things which are pleasurable, okay. a pork chop, okay. a nice piece of music, okay. these are pleasures of the sense, the concupiscible appetite, and then also the irascible appetite, which is concerned also with sensible goods, goods of the senses, but which are difficult to attain.
The irascible appetite bears the wound of weakness, source of faint-heartedness, cowardice, sloth, human respect, or worldly fear. And the concupiscible and the concupiscible appetite bears the wound, ah, the famous wound of the, the concupiscence. Okay, in the strict sense, okay, the source of lust, of gluttony, and all the other forms of intemperance. Baptism, ah, it restores us to sanctifying grace, makes us temples of the Blessed Trinity, members of Jesus Christ. All these. Wonderful, incredible effects, but it does not restore to us the preternatural gifts. And, as well, our human nature remains profoundly wounded, even if it is in the process of being healed. Okay. So there is in our souls a juxtaposition. On the one hand, grace, grace, the supernatural life of the soul, bringing with it the theological virtues of faith, hope, charity, and all the infused moral virtues. Oh. And all that together, St. Paul calls it the new man. Put on the new man. And on the other hand, these wounds of malice, ignorance, weakness, concupiscence, that St. Paul calls the old man. Between the new man and the old man, there is a struggle. There is a warfare. Huh? Okay. We have to fight against the old man. We have to put him to death by mortification of all our evil tendencies. St. Paul describes this struggle also as a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Okay, but we have to be careful. He doesn't, he, means, he doesn't mean the body and the soul. Oh, when St. Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit, almost always, he doesn't mean the body and the soul, but the tendencies of our fallen nature, oh, what he calls the flesh, and the aspirations of our supernatural life that he calls the spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. Walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to another. So mortification is necessary uh, because of all those effects, of all those results of original sin. But it's necessary as well because of the effects of our own personal sins. Uh, original sin in Adam, it was a personal and actual sin. For us it's not. That's not a sin we've committed. It's a, it's a state uh, that we've received, a state of privation of original grace and those other effects. Huh? But then there are also the sins that we ourselves commit, actual sins, personal sins. Okay? So remember that we said that sin has three effects. The stain, and the fact that sin makes us culpable or guilty, by which we mean objectively guilty, not just a feeling of guilt, which is not so important. The stain, two, the, the punishment, and three, the vice. So here we're concerned with the third effect of sin. And the repetition of sins forms in us habitual bad dispositions, like folds in a piece of paper. Right? These dispositions are the seedbed of all our sins. Right? 
these habitual dispositions or vices incline us to commit the same sin in the future or sins that are linked to it, sometimes more serious. And to commit them with greater frequency and ease. When we make a good confession of our sins, absolution destroys the guilt of sin. But the evil habit remains, and we have to fight against it. That's our our everyday experience. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised if we tend to fall always into the same sins. That's the habit that we formed. We have to be lucid about the presence of that evil habit, and we have to fight against it by mortification. Of course, the younger we are, the less our habits, good or bad, are formed. That's why education is always such a battlefield. And the world wants young people to develop all the vices, so that from the economic point of view, they will be very good consumers, with insatiable appetites, and nothing to hold them back. And from the political point of view, they will be easy to control and manipulate slaves to comfort and security. The younger we are, the easier it is for us to form habits. And so we should be very energetic in trying to acquire the virtues. The older we are, the more our habits are already formed and ingrained like a second nature. Whether they be good or bad, virtues or vices. It is more difficult to fight against vices that we have perhaps allowed to become ingrained over 40, 50, 60 or more years. But that's why we mustn't lose our time. We must be also very energetic in fighting against them while there is still time. So mortification, fighting against those inclinations, against those vices, is necessary for us. Thirdly, mortification is necessary because of the elevation of our supernatural end. God is calling us to share in his own life, which means to know him as he knows himself and to love him as he loves himself. He calls us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5 This extremely lofty goal requires that we employ special means. And these means are in fact very demanding. As we've seen, as a result of original sin, it would already be very demanding for us always to act in accordance with right reason. Always to act in a reasonable way and not to be dominated by lower inclinations. And that would be very difficult already. Not to let ourselves be governed by our less than rational or irrational tendencies or impulses. But in fact, this is not enough. God calls us to even more, to a goal that surpasses our nature. He commands that we govern our lives not only by reason, which is how we're built, that's how our nature is, not only by reason, 
but by reason enlightened by faith in what he has revealed to us. So he, he commands us to live not only a, a, a fully but purely human life, an ethical life, a philosophical life, not only that, but to live as his adopted children. And this requires from us a very great detachment from created things in order for us to be completely attached to God. And to arrive at this detachment, it is necessary to mortify ourselves even more than if we were only pursuing a natural goal and seeking to re-establish the reign of right reason over our lower appetites. So the effects of original sin, the effects of our personal sins, the elevation of our supernatural end, and fourthly, and lastly, mortification is necessary on account of our incorporation in Jesus Christ. Our baptism, by our baptism we have been incorporated into Christ, becoming members of his mystical body. And by this, uh, uh, this incorporation means that we have to have the same spirit, the same mind as Christ, and that we must be his imitators. Uh, St. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 10, we are always bearing about in our body the mortification of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our bodies. And our Lord says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. There is no other way. Where the head has gone, the members must pass as well. Okay? When the members of a body are not proportioned to the head, what do we call that? We call that a monster. Okay? So we don't want to be monstrous. We want to be conformed to Jesus Christ. So now we're going to turn to the practice of mortification. We must mortify our whole being, body and soul. Now, of course, sin, strictly speaking, is something in our will. Uh, an action that has not proceeded from our free will, like dreams, for example, cannot be sinful. But we need to think, so again, we're countering this idea that maybe in some way the body would be in itself evil. No, that's not what we mean. But who is it that sins? Well, a human being. And a human being is body and soul. And when he sins, he will usually make use of all the other elements of his body, of his being. Sorry, of his being. And all these other elements... Our body with its senses, our imagination, our memory, our passions, our intellect. If they are not disciplined, they can in their turn become occasions of sin. So it's not those elements are being in themselves. It is those elements are being insofar as there are bad inclinations or occasions of sin lodged in them. So we're going to go through some of these. 
going from the bottom to the top. Firstly, mortification of the senses. We start with what is most exterior to us. We must mortify our bodily senses by depriving them of what they find agreeable. St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Notice that St. Paul, uh, as a side point, St. Paul is not assuming that he is already saved, lest I become a castaway. Okay, we must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Mortification of the sight by custody of the eyes. Our eyes are avid to see. Almost every day, I don't know if you know, I certainly notice. If you travel anywhere in Kampala, you see these the Boda Bodas going down the road and how often they're walking. They're going in one direction and they're completely twisted round and looking in exactly the opposite direction. Their eyes are avid to see. And there is something which very interesting, like a strange Mzungu in a cassock walking down the road and they want to feast their eyes on that. <laughs> but what we see can very often be a distraction or a stumbling block. Book of Ecclesiasticus 9, verse 5. Gaze not upon a maiden, lest her beauty be a stumbling block to thee. And Job, holy Job, 31.1. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes, that I would not so much as think upon a virgin. Okay. Interesting phrase, how that makes the link between what we, what we see, and then afterwards what we imagine and what we think. If we did not look so much, we would certainly sin less. We realize that. And obviously, in our own day, internet has only exacerbated the problem. Because now literally anything can be seen by anyone, anywhere. So mortification, custody of the eyes, don't forget the internet. Our Lord uses very vigorous language, even if he is speaking metaphorically. He says, Matthew 5, 29, If thy right eye is an occasion of sin to thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is better for thee that one of thy members should perish, rather than that thy whole body be cast into hell. Obviously, our Lord is not suggesting that we physically blind ourselves okay when we leave today we don't want to see a pile of eyes there on the side of the road okay don't don't go saying that i I told you to do that yeah (laughs) he's talking metaphorically but he's saying that there are circumstances in which we should deprive our eyes of sight by refraining from looking so that our sight does not become for us an occasion of sin and damnation Mortification of the touch and taste. Of course here, pride of place goes to the practice of fasting. Fasting from food in in general, the quantity that we take, or something that we enjoy in particular, some quality. 
The holy woman St. Synclitica of Alexandria, who lived in the Egyptian desert in the 4th century, says, Bodily poison is cured by still stronger antidotes. And so fasting and prayer drive sordid temptations from us. Okay, and there are also many other ways that we can mortify our bodily comfort. Huh? Praying with arms outstretched, sleeping on the floor, getting up earlier in the morning, striking ourselves with a discipline. St. Dominic used to scourge himself three, scourge himself three times every night. Huh? Or more simply, Keeping a good posture. Not, not slouching, especially in chapel. Avoiding comfortable chairs and sofas, etc. Do we bear well the heat and the cold? Ah, the general... Okay, let me move on. I'm, I'm taking up a lot of time. All the saints were convinced of the necessity of chastising the body, and they have left us heroic examples that bear witness of their humility in the face of temptation and their faith in the gravity of sin. St. Benedict, he was assailed one day by a terrible temptation of the flesh, and seeing a thorn bush nearby, he stripped off his clothes and cast himself into the bush, rolling around in it until he was torn all over. St. Gregory the Great who tells us this story says that by this episode that says that by the wounds of his body he cured the wounds of his soul. Okay, I'm going to skip mortification of the sense of smell and hearing. Okay, life in a in a life in a metropolis gives us a lot of mortification of smell and hearing. But we can mention the mortification of the interior senses, above all the imagination. And it's essential here to chase as soon as possible, all daydreams and useless or idle imaginings, imaginations, yeah? or memories. And in this way, the door will be closed to those that are not just useless, but actually dangerous. And the main way to do this is to concentrate on the present action. Ajay quod agis. Do what you are doing. Uh, focus on the task in hand. And if that task uh, requires very little concentration, then and pray at the same time. I fill your imagination of scenes from the gospel, from the passion, from the mysteries of the rosary. Disciplining the imagination also reduces the likelihood of uh, non-supernatural visions that can lead us into illusion. An important point, mortification of our passions now. We're rising up huh, from, the, from the body to the soul. We mentioned that as a result of original sin, our passions have thrown off the government of reason and will, and they've become rebellious. What are these passions? We sometimes call them emotions. They are spontaneous movements of attraction or repulsion in our sensitive appetite, the lower part of our soul. Spontaneous movements of attraction or repulsion towards sensible goods. Ah, the pork chop. Sometimes we call them emotions or pulsions. Ah, there are 11 of them. We all experience them to some degree, but depending on our temperament, ah, some will be stronger than others. Okay. So what are they? First of all, love and hate. Okay, with regards to something which is good or evil as such. 
from the sensible point of view. Desire and aversion, when that good or that evil is absent. Joy and sadness, when that good or that evil is present to us. Okay, we can imagine stupid example, a box of chocolates. As something that tastes good, my sensitive appetite loves it. As, a, as if it is absent, I desire it. If it is present, I am happy. It is an occasion of joy. These are the passions of the concupiscible appetite. And when that good is difficult or arduous to obtain, then it excites the passions of our irascible appetite. Okay, if someone stronger than me comes and, and takes away my box of chocolates, okay, imagine a, a little boy. I don't know, a little boy at school whose chocolates have been stolen by the school bully who is older and bigger and stronger than him. Well, he wants to get them back, but now it is an arduous good to obtain. First, maybe he despairs. It is impossible. And then he considers that with a few friends to help him, maybe the goal is still difficult, but possible. He has hope. And then, uh, when, uh, so he finally he, he shouts to the bully, ah, give me my chocolates back. And the bully uh, rolls up his sleeves, starts heading towards this, uh, this, this little scamp. Uh, and so uh, the boy experiences fear. But when his friends come and surround him, he has the audacity to face the bully. Uh, and finally, his friends, maybe uh, they decide that the guy is too big, they run away and leave him. Uh, so uh, the bully decides to teach him a lesson. And uh, the little boy experiences anger. In themselves, the passions are neither good or bad. Okay, they're completely neutral in themselves. They have absolutely zero moral value, either good or evil. A person is not good because he has good feelings. And a person is not bad because they have bad feelings. For example, the passion of love. Passion of love, we have it, it's just part of our animality, it's part of our, it's an animal attraction. Okay. Then we have other forms of love which are higher. Okay. Spiritual love, intellectual love, charity, supernatural. Okay. So these things are not good or bad, so long as we're not governed by them. Okay, they are. They are autom- the first movements of them are, are, are automatic, are spontaneous. We have no control, like dreams. Okay? The passions are part of our God-given nature. And they are meant to be controlled by reason and put to good use. If we look at our Lord, we see that he has complete, he has the passions. But he has complete mastery of his passions. And the Gospels show us, and they show us his just anger. When he throws the vendors out of the temple. They show us his holy sorrow or sadness uh, for sin. Uh, but for us, okay, we can't be complacent and say, oh, well, the, the passions, you know, we're meant to have them, so that's fine. Because of the current state of our fallen nature, the passions are rebellious and they have to be mortified. Because if left to run their course, they drag us into actions that are contrary to reason and contrary to faith and therefore sinful. We mortify the passions above all by performing actions contrary to the passion that we are experiencing or that we begin to experience. If 
we experience antipathy for a person, then now we mortify that by acting as if we wanted to gain their sympathy by being friendly, by being helpful, by praying for them. If on the contrary we experience too strong an affection for someone, okay, then we avoid their company. Right? Or if that is impossible, then and we stay polite, but there is that, oh, we know there is that kind of, uh, kind of cold and restrained politeness uh, by which we give what is due, but no more, for the sake of decency. With time, these contrary acts will weaken the passion and make it disappear. Finally, very briefly, and then we will sum up, we should, we should also mention the mortification of the intellect and will. Although, I guess, the highest part of our being, although, of course, if we're doing everything else, then in a way, uh, we, are, we are doing that to our intellect and will as well, because they, control, they are controlling the rest of, the rest of us. Huh? They're controlling our, our acts of mortification. So we need, to, we need to make them firm with regards to what is below them and docile to what is above them, uh, the intellect and will. Mortification of the intellect, two uh, defects to combat. Curiosity and intellectual pride. Curiosity, uh, a defect in this strict sense, huh, is a defect of the mind that inclines us with eagerness and precipitation huh, towards the consideration and study of less useful subjects, making us neglect the things of God and our salvation. So people can have an encyclopedic knowledge about all sorts of things that they don't need to know about, uh, but they don't know uh, the basic answers of their catechism. It's completely disordered. We should study in the first place not what pleases us, but what is useful. Above all, uh, what is useful for our eternal salvation. Uh, the great question of our life. And intellectual pride consists in having an exorbitant appreciation of one's own uh, opinions and judgments. Uh, we have to have masters. We must be docile uh, when it comes to the spiritual life. Uh, we, uh, we are docile to, to the traditional teaching of the church. Uh, we don't make up our own opinions. Uh, we read the Bible, but we, uh, we read the Bible uh, submitting to uh, the, the, the teaching of, of the church and the fathers of the church and so forth. And motivation of the will. Okay, so we need, with regards to everything which is below, everything we've been mentioning, the, the passions, uh, the, the body, we need the will to be strong. Okay? And we do that by, well, by the will making us exercise all the other mortifications that we've been doing, but above all, doing it in a disciplined way, huh? not doing it in a haphazard way. Huh? So the importance of setting ourselves as much as possible a regular way of going about our life, huh? like a personal rule, a personal uh, time to, as much as possible, as much as possible. Okay? There are many things we have to remain flexible, of course. Huh? But so, for example, in our mortifications and penances, not just to make them up on the spur of the moment, uh, from day to day, but to set ourselves a plan, and that disciplines our will. Okay? Because then we have to follow the plan. And docility to what is above, uh, that is to, to the reason which should inform uh, our will and, and faith unto God. Okay? So here we need to combat our self-will. Okay? 
The best way is, is by obedience. Okay, not everyone has the, has the privilege of obedience, right? But we have to make use of, of what we have. Huh? The church uh, has, has certain laws. Hmm? Above all, with regards to our penances and mortifications, we should be, uh, we should be uh, docile to the recommendations of uh, our confessor or spiritual director. Okay, we'll see that in, in the later talks as well. Okay, that, that counters our self-will. Yeah, a generous person may really want to do some kind of spiritual exercise, some kind of mortification. Huh? But if the spiritual director or their confessor says, okay, just, 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 just slow down on that maybe, yeah, then by, uh, by, by heeding his advice, we are curbing, we are mortifying our self-will. So let's sum up some of our main points. Because of our past sins, we need to deprive ourselves by penance. And this is an act of justice, an act of religion, something that we owe to God on account of the offense or the dishonor that sin does him. Insofar, uh, but also, insofar as penance is offered voluntarily and as an act of charity, this penance is an act of satisfaction performed in and by Jesus Christ, who has offered on the cross a perfect and superabundant satisfaction that frees us from the eternal punishment due for sin, reserving for us the temporal punishment that we undergo in this life or the next. And because of sorrow for, because sorrow for sin leads us to want to avoid sin in the future, we also seek to mortify ourselves, denying ourselves even in things that are permitted in order to curb the disorders introduced into us by original sin and by our own personal sins. And thereby, uh, well, we are cooperating with God's healing grace and re-establishing the true order of our being, of the lower subjected to the higher. And we also cooperate with God's elevating grace by detaching our heart from created things so as to clear away the obstacles to growth and supernatural life and to be more closely configured to our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there, overrun, but, uh, and our, uh, I'll leave you some time for reflection, and our next talk will be on St. Jean-Marie Vianney, the Curé of Ars. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.